I would like to welcome all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God. Uh, one of the things that we do at the beginning of every new book uh, is provide you with a resource that has the text of scripture on uh, one side and then a blank page so you can take notes on the other. Uh, Randy is going around passing out the Nehemiah uh, booklet. If you would like one, raise your hand or just uh, look at him so that he knows you'd like one. Uh, but we're making those available for you. Uh, turn in God's word to Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. We'll be looking at the first chapter of this book together. I should note, incidentally, uh, that Ezra and Nehemiah are actually one book, even though um, in our English editions we divide them. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. Let's hear God's word together. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the, month, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who have survived, the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to the prayer, to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcast in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make them dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we rejoice in the fact that in the midst of life's uncertainty, you are utterly faithful and dependable. Uh, you are a God who keeps your promises, and not one of your words to us will fail. We thank you that this is the solid ground of our existence, and we ask for grace to build our lives on the foundation of your faithfulness to us, rather than on ever-changing circumstances. Father in heaven, even as we acknowledge your unshakable faithfulness to us, we recognize that often our lives are characterized by faithlessness to you. We confess, Father, that often we put ourselves first and you second. We pursue our desires rather than your desires. And Father, we ask in the mighty name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that you would forgive us our sins. Pardon us for the sake of your Savior. Cleanse us of our transgressions. We ask also this morning that you would be pleased to address every single soul here today. Uh, make your will to us known. Encourage the downcast. Bring those who are in rebellion against you to repentance. And Father, if there are those present who have not placed their trust in your son Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, in your grace and kindness, we pray that you would draw them to yourself. Grant your word to build us up today 
and bring honor to you. Amen. <clears throat> I had a pastor friend who once uh, made the observation that uh, prayer is a little bit like climbing a really high mountain. Uh, regardless of how much you've climbed, there's always more mountain to climb. Uh, and I think many of us perhaps feel that way about prayer. We've, uh, if we've walked with the Lord for a while. Hopefully we've made progress in our communion with God and prayer. Uh, but there's always more ground to cover. There's always more maturing that we need to do in this area. And this passage in Nehemiah uh, contains one of the great prayers of Scripture. And it helps us uh, better understand how to go deep in our walk with God, how to go deep in our prayer lives. Uh, but before we turn to Nehemiah and his deeply emotional response to the news he receives and his prayer, I want us to remember what happened just before this. <clears throat> Uh, you may recall that last week we were introduced uh, to the ministry, to the character of Ezra. Uh, Ezra was a Bible scholar who lived in Babylonia. This, is, this took place about 13 years before this passage that we're looking at. Bible scholar lived in Babylonia, and he was called by God to return back to his homeland, to Jerusalem and Judea, and teach the people of God, uh, people of God the law of God. And so he returns to Jerusalem. Uh, and after about four months after he returns, he discovers that some of the prominent men among the Jews have started intermarrying with pagan women. Uh, they are not marrying Jewish women, they are marrying women who are worshiping other gods. Now, this is a significant violation of God's command. The problem is not racial purity, it's religious purity. By intermingling with the pagans, they are opening the door to the worship of other gods and they are in danger of losing their distinctiveness as the people of God, as a holy people set apart. They're in danger of assimilating to the lifestyle of their neighbors. So Ezra and the other leaders of uh, Israel respond swiftly and decisively. They say all those who have uh, married foreign women need to put those women aside to sever that relationship and send them away along with any children that came out of that relationship. Now, in some uh, conversations that I had with a few of you after last week's message, uh, the, the question that came up often was, how is that right? Uh, in Malachi, uh, we recognize that God says that he hates divorce. Our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 19, verse 6 says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. God wants people to remain committed to one another in marriage, so how was it right for the Jews to break off uh, these relationships? Well, several things could be said. I, I will restrict myself to mentioning three of them. First thing to note is that Israel is, a very, is at a very unique place in our history. Uh, Israel at this point is not an independent, sovereign nation state. She doesn't have political autonomy. She's a small religious community surrounded by powerful neighbors, and the chief threat is that she'll lose her identity as a distinct people through assimilating with the neighbors. And so desperate times call for desperate measures, and divorce seems to have been the lesser of two evils in this specific historical context. But we should be careful about taking something that occurred in a very uh, unique historical context and generalizing it as God's will for his people in all times and places. Uh, God's will for Christians married to non-Christians, as we'll see in a moment, is not that they necessarily should divorce, as we'll see. So be careful about generalizing. There's something historically distinct about this. Second thing to note, if you look at uh, the prophet Malachi, who was ministering in this uh, time period, uh, Malachi 2, 10 through 16, 
you'll note that some of these prominent men were actually divorcing their Jewish wives to marry some of these pagan women. And the third thing to, to consider is it's just possible that these marriages were illegitimate to begin with. God emphatically does not permit his people to marry pagans, idol worshipers. And it's possible that these marriages, these unions were illegitimate from the beginning. Uh, some of the language that's used in Ezra chapter 10 supports this. Uh, in Ezra 10 verse two, for example, uh, the expression that's translated marry or marriage uh, is not used elsewhere in the Old Testament for marriage. The only other place it's, is, it's used is in Nehemiah 13, and in both instances, that expression refers not to regular marriages, but to unions of uh, Jews and pagans. So even the language suggests that this is less than something uh, of a true marriage, of a full marriage, perhaps. Uh, this is further reinforced by the word that is translated divorce in chapter 10, verse 3. It's not the normal word that's used for divorce in the Old Testament. So these might be indications as well that something less than a full marriage is taking place. Uh, but of course, the crucial issue for us is what is God's will for us today? Uh, the, the Bible's teaching, God's will for his people today, in a nutshell, is that we get married and stay married. Uh, marriage is a covenant relationship. This means that it's a relationship between a man and a woman grounded in a solemn oath that we make to each other. So we always have an oath at weddings. Uh, we pledge our lives to one another. Husband says, I'll be with you in sickness and in health for richer or poorer until death do us part. The wife also pledges herself. And the will of God is that we should remain faithful to that covenant till death do us part. Uh, the prophet Malachi, 19 verse nine, uh, notes that, um, that marriage is, in fact, a covenant. No, I'm sorry, that's not Malachi. That's Matthew. Malachi 2.14. The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Right? You've committed to each other. God's desire is for us to honor that commitment. We glorify him by remain, remaining faithful to our promises that we made before God and witnesses. Um, now, we, you know, we recognize that all kinds of uh, temptations come to us along the way, our feelings come and go, but our marriage is not based on how we feel at any given moment. We happen to feel loving or not. Our marriage is grounded in this firm fact of a promise. So in contrast to the world around us, which at times can be very fickle in terms of its res respecting its com marital commitments, God's people ought to be marked by a high view of marriage and a commitment to the covenant. Uh, the majority view among Protestants is that the New Testament gives us two situations in which divorce may be legitimate. First situation is uh, in, in the event of sexual immorality. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 19, verse 9. He says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Uh, sexual immorality would include things like adultery, uh, being with someone else, and in that situation, divorce is permissible, but note, not required. Jesus isn't saying you have to divorce in that situation. It's simply permissible. Uh, the other uh, situation in which we might sever the bonds of marriage is given to us by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. In a situation where a believer is married to a non-believer, and the non-believer decides to desert the Christian, 
the believer is free to divorce. Now, obviously, efforts should be made at reconciliation, but if the non-Christian persists in wanting to separate and to abandon the, the believer, the believing partner, then divorce in that situation is appropriate as well. Uh, so the scriptures, both New Testament and Old Testament, recognize that because, of, because we live in a fallen world and there's sin in our lives and in the lives of the people around us, sometimes divorce is the reality, but it's not God's intention and desire for his people. God desires for us to keep our covenants with one another. So there's this moment of massive repentance for Israel. The foreign wives are put away, and then 13 years later, we are introduced to the character of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah is different from Ezra. Ezra is a scholar, skilled in the law, bookish. Uh, Nehemiah is a careful planner, an organizer, an energetic leader. Uh, and he has a prominent position in the royal court, in the court of the Persian king Artaxerxes. He's the cupbearer. It's a very prestigious position. He would be responsible for making sure the king doesn't get poisoned. And he would even, it seems, uh, select the wine. So something of an ancient sommelier, I suppose. Um, but he had access to the king. And that is actually the thing that enables him to make this magnificent request that he makes in chapter 2, which we'll look at next week. It's a very prominent individual in the court. Uh, but he's not living in Judah at this time, he's still living in exile. Well, a group of Jews return from the, home, from the motherland, and Nehemiah's heart is with the remnant, it's with the people of God. So he asks, how are the people doing? How's it going with them? And they respond, oh, well, it's not going well, actually. Uh, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. And part of the trouble is the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are destroyed with fire. They're com completely defenseless from their enemies. Now, it's important to recognize that these men are probably not alluding to the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar. That took place more than a century before, and Nehemiah would have been well aware of that. In Ezra chapter 4, there is mention of an attempt on the part of the Jews to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, but they are stopped by their hostile enemies. And, and this uh, takes place at the beginning of Artaxerxes' reign, the same king that Nehemiah is serving. And that's probably the incident that's in view here. So, you know, a decade or two before this, they attempt to rebuild the wall, and, it, and the whole thing is halted by the intervention of their malicious neighbors. So this is a, a period of great vulnerability for God's people. They're defenseless against their enemies. And when Nehemiah hears this news... He responds, he responds in an emotional, heartfelt way. He uh, prays, and he weeps, and he fasts, and he cries out to God on behalf of the people of God. Notice that he's not emotionally distant. Same thing holds true for Ezra, incidentally. When he hears about the sin of Israel, he weeps. He tears out the hair from his beard and his hair, and he fasts, and he prays to God. Nehemiah does the same thing. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't hear the news and say, well, okay. What am I supposed to do? Well, I guess I should pray. How long do I have to pray uh, before I can legitimately stop? It's not half-hearted. It's not mechanical. He hears the news, and it just strikes a chord with it. He weeps, and he prays for days, and even months, he petitions God for the people of God. Now, I think what Nehemiah's example does is it exposes our own half-heartedness. A lot of times, we're guilty of going through the motions. We know what we're supposed to do. And we do it, but not with our whole heart. We do it grudgingly and mechanically. Uh, we show up to church on Sunday. 
We're supposed to worship God with his people, so we show up, but our heart is really in the lunch afterward, in the football game, or in this case, the basketball game. It's not there with the people of God. Uh, we recognize that God's people are called to be hospitable, so we invite people over, uh, but our heart is really in you know, the Netflix show that we're going to watch once they leave. <laughs> we're going through the motion, but our heart is not in, in caring for the people. Uh, d- doing the will of God half-heartedly and grudgingly falls short of his calling on our lives. We're called to serve him passionately and wholeheartedly. Uh, I don't know if this, is, if this is true in your household, but in our family, uh, a day or two before we go on vacation, we'll take some time to pack. And, uh, you know, that could take several hours as we ransack the closets and put the clothes in the suitcases and we get the toothbrush and the toothpaste. And, we, and, and all of this work is done very happily. Nobody complains. Everyone's really enthusiastic because, you know, the vacation is like a day or two away. So there's tremendous excitement. But inevitably, a week, 10 days later, two weeks, you come home and those suitcases are still full, but now of dirty clothes that need to be washed. Uh, they're wrinkled. They need to be ironed. And the, the enthusiasm is noticeably different. <laughs> there isn't a desire to open up the suitcases and take everything out. It's drudgery. Well, often in our service to God, we're more like that family, the post-vacation family, than the family before the vacation. We do it, we have to do it, uh, but we don't want to do it. Uh, The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Be fervent. God wants you to serve him passionately. When you do something, be emotionally invested and committed to what you're doing for him. When you pray for the lost, don't mumble a prayer before you fall asleep at night. Weep, grieve, persist in that prayer. Do it with your whole heart. When you read the Bible with your family, don't do it as you're nodding off in the evening. Do it with gusto and passion. This is, after all, the word of God. When you show up to worship God with his people, do so with a sense of anticipation. We are encountering God. Other places in your life, where you're just going through the motions. You're doing the right things, but your heart is far from what God has called you to do. If so, God's will for you is to acknowledge that before him, to identify those places where that's happening, to confess and seek grace, to serve God, not just externally, but with everything that's in you. So that's the first thing we notice: the intensity of Nehemiah's response. And then that deep concern for God's people is expressed in prayer. There are three things I want you to notice about this prayer. The first is the opening address to God, the opening address to God. The second is the confession. And the third is the request that Nehemiah makes on behalf of the people of God, a request grounded in the word of God. Uh, Notice that Nehemiah doesn't just jump into his request. He doesn't just start to say, Lord, I need this and I need this. He pauses to reflect on that great abyss that separates the creature from the creator. He pauses to reflect on the greatness of God. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. He remembers that he is just a breath. He's here for a moment and then gone. But he's speaking to the eternal God who has no beginning and no no end. He eternally is. Notice that praise and adoration comes before petition, and request. Now, this is, I think, a significant ingredient that's, that ought to be in our prayers but frequently isn't. 
Uh, our prayers begin and end with what I need. We have long lists, right, that we bring to God. Help me with this, help me with that. And it's certainly legitimate for us to express our desires to the Lord and ask him to help us. But what's often missing is this element of worship, this uh, element of coming into his presence, recognizing how great he is, recognizing how merciful he has been to us, and just pausing to praise him, to thank him, and adore him. Are there long stretches of your prayer life where you simply contemplate the greatness of God and respond with adoration? That's a crucial ingredient in biblical prayer. So Nehemiah begins with the greatness of God and then turns to the faithfulness of God. You see, this, you see that as well in the opening. God is the one who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Uh, that language of keeping covenant means that God keeps his promises. God doesn't say one thing and do another. He's not fickle. Everything that he tells you he will do, he will certainly do. His steadfast love means that he is unflinchingly loyal to you, his people. Uh, circumstances change, we change, but God's steadfast love never changes. And so Nehemiah reflects on the fact that God is not simply powerful and great, but he is utterly committed to his people. God is powerful and therefore he is able to answer our prayers, but he is also faithful and therefore willing to answer our prayers. Now, what do you think that would do to your prayer life if you began with that? Before you asked anything of God, what, what would happen if you started by remembering how great he is and how committed he is? Well, one result of that would probably be that your confidence in approaching God would increase. Your sense of expectation would increase. You're not speaking to a God who's reluctant to answer your prayers. You are speaking to the God who pledged to you that I am your God and you are my child. God is not stingy in answering prayers. So one of the things we learn from Nehemiah's prayer is that by beginning with God, his faithfulness and his glory, our own confidence when we approach him to petition him increases. So that's the first thing, the address to God. The second thing is that Nehemiah confesses the sins of the people and even his own sins. He prays confessing the sins of the people of Israel, verse six, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. Confession simply means that you become aware that you have violated the law of God and you don't attempt to explain away your guilt. You simply come into the presence of God and say, God, I'm guilty, forgive me. You take ownership for what you've done. I want you to notice that when Nehemiah thinks about sin, he's not simply thinking about an impersonal violation of a law. He's thinking ab about rejecting a person. Sin is always personal. He speaks of uh, the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned, but notice he doesn't stop there, which we have sinned, which we have sinned against you. Sin is never simply violating a law. It is always rejecting God. When we sin against the creator, we are saying, I'm going to be my own king, and I am not going to submit to your lordship over my life. Every sin communicates to God that you are not worthy of my obedience, your ways are not good, and I won't let you rule over me. Every sin has this tremendous moral weight. And when we recognize that we have rebelled against God, our response should be what Nehemiah's response is here, to confess. To not make explanations or rationalizations, but to come before God and say, God, I've dishonored you. I've trampled your glory under my feet. I beg you to have mercy on me and take away my guilt. 
And here's the amazing thing about God. He does. God freely forgives every single person who asks him for forgiveness. Every person who comes before God and says, God, I've messed up. Have mercy on me. God says, pardoned. God doesn't keep us guessing about whether or not he's going to forgive us our sins. Am I right with God? Am I not right with God? He tells us in his word that if we confess, he is faithful to pardon. 1 John uh, 1.9 tells us very clearly, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not he might forgive us. No, if you confess your sins, he will certainly forgive you. Uh, we see this uh, with the tax collector in Luke's gospel. Jesus tells a parable about this man who has lived in rebellion against the Lord. And he comes to God, and here's what Jesus says about him. The tax collector beat his breast as an expression of sorrow. The tax collector beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's confession. I'm a sinner. Have mercy. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified, forgiven. He asks God for pardon, and God freely pardons him. That means that the forgiveness of God can cover any sin regardless of how, how serious it is. The mercy of God goes deeper than the worst thing you've ever done. Do you believe that? The forgiveness of God goes deeper than the worst thing that you have ever done. And he is ready to pardon every single sin that is confessed to him. We should respond to that by confessing. Uh, rather than trying to explain away to ourselves and others what we've done wrong, we should go to God who freely pardons and say, Lord, I've messed up, have mercy on me. And then we should bask in the sweet reality that God has indeed pardoned us. I don't think we linger enough as Christians um, over the reality of God's forgiveness. Uh, we confess our sins, Lord, I'm sorry I did that, please forgive me, and that's right, we should. But then we don't pause to enjoy the fact that God really has forgiven us for that thing we've asked him. And just linger there and savor the sweetness of God's pardon. So confess your sins. God freely pardons those who do. But I want you to understand something. Even though God freely forgives, forgiveness isn't free. Even though God freely forgives, forgiveness isn't free. Uh, what do I mean by that? I mean that though God welcomes every single person who confesses their sins to him, a high price was paid for that forgiveness. Nothing less than the life of the Son of God was given that we might be pardoned for, for our guilt. Jesus Christ endured the horror of the cross that we might be pardoned in the sight of God. Here's what Isaiah says, Isaiah 53, verses four and five. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Forgiveness is free to us because Jesus endured the anguish of the cross. Nothing less than the life of the Son of God was given to purify us in the sight of God. And so when we confess our sins to God, we should rejoice in his forgiveness and we should give thanks to our Savior who gave his life to bring us to God. And note finally in Nehemiah's prayer, 
his request or petition, uh, 8 through 10. I want you to notice that this petition is grounded in the prior word of God. It's based on what God has said to his people. Remember the word that, that you commanded your servant Moses. So this is about a thousand years before Nehemiah's praying. He's referring to a word that God gave his people through Moses about a thousand years in the book of Deuteronomy. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. So at that point in Israel's history, when they just became a nation, Moses says, if you're unfaithful to the covenant, God is going to scatter you among the nations. But there's hope. Verse 9, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcasts, uh, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. So if you are unfaithful to the covenant, the day will come when I will scatter you. But listen, if you return back to me, I don't care if it's the end of the earth, I'm going to bring you all back home. And so Nehemiah is appealing to that promise. He's saying, God, remember what you promised a thousand years ago? That when we are in exile because of our sins, you're going to bring us back? Please act according to your word. Please fulfill your promise. Now, you might think it's a little strange that he cites a, uh, this promise because the promise is, I'll bring you back to the land, and God has already done that. God has already brought his people back to Jerusalem and Judea. But it seems to be the case that Nehemiah... Uh, thinks of this promise not simply in the return of the, of the return of the exiles to the land, but as being established in the land, flourishing in the land. And that's why he's citing uh, this word through Moses. But the fundamental reason and basis of Nehemiah's, uh, Nehemiah's appeal is in verse 10. Uh, he reminds God, as it were, that Israel is his people. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. God, act, not because we deserve it, but because you have chosen us to be your people. Uh, you have been gracious to us, you've called us to be yours, and in your faithfulness to us, restore us to the land and establish us in the land. Cause the walls to be rebuilt and your people to dwell securely. The sig significant thing I want you to notice is that his petition is based on God's word. He comes before God asking him to do something based on what God has promised to do. And this teaches us, when we make petitions of God, we should learn uh, the discipline of making our case biblically for what we ask. Here's how J.I. Packer puts it. We should lay before God the reasons why we think that what we ask for is the best thing. One of the reasons this is important is that teaches us to pray in line with God's will. In the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 98, we are asked, what is prayer? And this is the definition we get. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God. So we tell God what's on our heart. For things agreeable to his will, in the name of Christ, with confession for our sins, and thankful acknowledgement for his mercies. Notice that phrase, things agreeable to his will. When we pray, we want to ask God for things that he approves of and delights in. Well, how can we do that? Well, we can do that by reflecting on, is, what does the Bible say about the request that I'm making of God? Is it a good request? Is it a bad request? Are there reasons God should an, uh, answer this prayer? 
And by doing that, what, one thing you'll find is you'll, you'll either drop the petitions you're making before God, or you will tweak them in light of the Bible's teaching. So for example, if you say, God, make me rich, you might pray that in a moment of weakness, perhaps. Uh, but if you start to reflect on everything the Bible says about wealth and riches and how we need to be careful, you might either drop that petition or tweak it to bring it more in line with God's will. Uh, take, for example, uh, let's say we have a Christian man who is sick, his health is deteriorating, he's experiencing increasing weakness in his body. It'd, be, it'd certainly be legitimate for that man to simply come before God and say, God, heal me. It's a perfectly legitimate petition. But it would be helpful for that man to also consider what the Bible says. And he might start by saying, God, you, just, you delight to reveal your glory. You delight to reveal your power and your goodness to the, to the world, to the people around me. So I pray that for the sake of making your goodness known to my coworkers and my family, that you would heal me. Notice how the petition is now grounded in the glory of God. He might also pray, God, I'm a father. You've commanded me to instruct my children in the way that they should go. You've called me to raise them, uh, to fear you, and to teach them. And I just, I just don't have the energy to do that because of my health issues. God, won't you heal me so that I can fulfill my responsibilities to my children? And God, you've called me to provide for my family, to put food on the table. Won't you heal me so that I can go to work, provide for my family, and not be a burden to others? Notice how that petition, Lord, heal me, is grounded in what the Bible says about his responsibilities and the glory of God. And when we do that, I think one of the things that we will discover is that our confidence and expectation that God will act will increase. Uh, when we approach him on the basis of his word, uh, we will have a greater confidence that, yes, he's indeed going to act for these reasons. Uh, some of us have very long prayer lists, perhaps. Uh, one thing that we might learn from Nehemiah is maybe shorten the prayer list, and then for every item in that prayer list, maybe take more time to thoughtfully uh, think through it and make your case biblically for what you're asking of God. Now, the final thing Nehemiah asks is that God would give him success when he stands before the king. This is a risky thing. We saw that the Persian king Artaxerxes has already decreed that the, uh, that the wall shouldn't be built. That's why the, their enemies were able to stop them. And essentially, what Nehemiah is doing is he's, asking, he's going to ask the king to reverse course. It's risky, and it's dangerous. But notice how robust prayer leads to risk-taking for God. Robust prayer leads to robust action. After this fervent prayer that goes on for over the course of several months, uh, Nehemiah is ready to act, and he's ready to petition the king. Action for God and a rich prayer life go together. If you want to act decisively and courageously for God in the world, then you need to spend more time seeking his face privately at home. Rich prayer life leads to deep obedience. If you want to go hard after God, if you want to be the sort of person who takes risk for God's kingdom, then seek him in prayer, in adoration, in confession, and petitions. Amen. May God help us all to grow in our prayer lives. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you. You are our rock. You are faithful. Uh, give us grace through your word and spirit to increasingly reform how we approach you in prayer and grant us to seek your face continuously, adoring you, uh, praying for the things that matter to you. 
Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to your people. Amen.